G'day humans, welcome to the safe space for dangerous ideas, and boy there are a lot of dangerous ideas floating around. And also some very hackneyed and predictable and not particularly dangerous and convenient ideas floating around since most of us uh, tend to talk to each other inside little sound bites at the moment. There's a lot of, oh yes, well, we have to be very uh, measured and we have to be cautious about uh, about the things that, that we say. And, uh, so I'm getting a little weary of the, the inability to just talk bluntly about things that are going on, especially when tempers are running as high as they are, given what's happening in Israel and Gaza. Uh, Eli Lake, <clears throat> is a great person to chat to about this. You may have heard, if you're a loyal listener, and if you're not a loyal listener, hey, what the hell are you doing? Uh, recently, uh, Anthony Lowenstein was on the show, uh, who is a Jewish-Australian journalist, extremely critical of Israel, and this was well before Gaza, uh, the Gaza tragedy happened. And um, Anthony and I had a, a really interesting conversation where I felt like I was the more pro-Israel, more pro-Zionist one. Uh, then the atrocities uh, in the Middle East just happened with uh, with Hamas's attack on Israel and now the the ongoing fallout from that. And some people on Twitter were saying, well, it wasn't great timing that you had that conversation just a few weeks beforehand, which was so critical of Israel. How about a little bit of balance? This episode is that balance uh, in which <clears throat> I find myself on the opposite side being the more anti-Israel or critical uh, voice here because Eli Lake knows basically a lot more about it than I do, uh, and than most people do, since he spent his life as a national security journalist specializing in the Middle East. He's a contributing editor to Commentary magazine. Uh, he was a syndicated columnist for Bloomberg uh, for almost 10 years, from 2014 to 2022. He was a reporter at the New York Sun, the Daily Beast, the Washington Times, uh, and his specialty, as I say, is national security, Israel, uh, Islamist terrorism, uh, knows everything there is to know about that region and about the insides and outsides. He breaks big stories. He has contacts on the ground. Uh, and he's broadly, as a Jewish-American guy, sympathetic to Israel's plight. And so here I try to push back against that point of view and get a more balanced perspective than perhaps you're getting in the rest of the media especially if you live outside the United States. Uh, Eli has a podcast called The Re-Education with Eli Lake. Check it out and enjoy this conversation with the one and only Eli Lake. I, I, I think we have to look at this as something beyond Israel. It's an attack on Jews. Why is it useful to think of it that way? I think there are a couple of reasons. The first is that um, the Hamas, the organization that orchestrated this pogrom, is motivated first and foremost by a desire to kill Jews and ultimately conquer uh, what is the land of Israel and impose Islamic law. So that I, I think it's important in that respect to distinguish this from nationalist violence or something you know of that kind even though i if if any any group for whatever reason that conducted such an atrocity um should obviously be condemned i think the second reason is because we have seen in the west um a kind of response uh to this murder spree um that uh is uh is very much like um, a celebration 
of um, a lust for Jewish blood. Um, so if you notice, I mean, the first demonstrations began before Israel really did anything. And it was celebrated by certain groups as an act of resistance, um, you know, a, a, a prison breakout of some kind. Um, and when you're talking about the kind of horrific uh, violence, uh, the kind of horrific atrocity that we saw on October 7th, well, I mean, I, I just think that we have to look at that in the context of this is this is a this is this is more than just objection to the Jewish state. It's objection to the Jewish people. I'm wary of conflating Israel with Jewishness and resent the fact that Likud and Bibi Netanyahu have worked overtime to try to seem to make that case. I was talking to David Badil, who's an English prominent Jew and successful comedy writer who has an attitude of like, why do people keep asking me as a British Jew about the misdeeds of Israel? Like that, that doesn't have anything to do with me. We don't ask, we don't ask Chinese Australians or Chinese Americans to account for the crimes of the communist party. We don't say that China shouldn't get a state because uh, of its treatment of the Uyghurs in Western China. We don't ask Persian Americans to account for the mullahs in Tehran. You know, only when it comes to Jews do we expect Jews globally to be to st- sort of answer for this country that claims to speak on behalf of them but doesn't really, and that actually it only serves the the sort of anti-Jewish narrative to conflate Israel with Jews. We have to be able to criticize Israel as a country, and then there are the world's Jews as a separate pot, and it's in the interests of both Islamists and also. Uh, hyper-Zionist, uh, anti-peacenik, uh, liquid settlers to conflate Jews with Israel. D- do you think there's anything there? No. Um, first of all, there's a very special circumstance for the Jewish people and the Jewish state, and that is that Israel was created as a safe haven for Jews because of a long history of persecution of Jews when they were stateless. So even if you... Uh, and there are plenty of Jews in Israel and in its in diaspora who disagree with the policies of Israel. There are anti-Zionist Jews. I am not here as a kind of Talmudic authority to claim who is and who is not a Jew. Um, rather, I'm saying that in a situation like this, the group that perpetrated the massacre was motivated by a desire to kill Jews, full stop. So I think it's different than this kind of question of Jews and diaspora feeling uncomfortable when asked to defend this or that Israeli policy. Um, and, you know, anybody who, who is kind of mildly informed about, you know, the history or the conflict understands that there are multitude of, there are many opinions that Jews and diaspora in Israel have about how to proceed. And so I'm certainly not saying that if you criticize Israel's policy of settlements, then, uh, you know, you're you're not a, a good Jew or something like that. But I do think that there are groups um, or I should be more specific. There are there are sort of Jewish organizations. We have something in the United States called Jewish Voice for Peace, which I have dubbed Jewish Voice per, for Pogrom. And they are explicitly anti-Zionist. And they they have, you know, along with other voices on the left, tried in many ways to describe what is the 
you know, worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust as some kind of act of resistance, um, which in addition to being, in my view, um, almost a kind of a, a, a very kind of sly anti-Semitism because it's like you, you, you people deserve this. It's also bad for Palestinians. I don't understand how you can claim to be in solidarity with Palestinians by rationalizing or celebrating or explaining away an atrocity committed by theocratic fascists, full stop. And so, you know, this will set back the quest for a Palestinian state. This will set back the prospect for a two-state solution. Uh, This will set back the living conditions in Gaza. This started a war. Um, I mean, but what were the prospects for a two-state solution or for a peace settlement, you know, up until this? Let let me tell Let's let's just drill into this act of resistance idea. Okay. Okay. Because and let's park whether or not conflating Israel's interests with Jewish interests uh, hands Benjamin Netanyahu the ability to either enrich or destroy global Jewry, uh, which is uh, unwise. Like I don't want to be hostage to the policies of Israel, and therefore I'd like well, to nobody. Nobody myself. is saying you are. There's a difference though between well, when when we say that that ev- that every time someone criticizes. Israel, they're implicitly criticizing Jews, or that it's well, I'm not saying that anti-Semitic to be anti-Zionist. That, that I'm not saying that either. Saying? I think I'm not saying that either. I'm saying that if you you said they're in favor of pogroms because they are explicitly anti-Zionist. No, I'm saying that they represent they 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 pass themselves off as a part of the of the, the sort of I think that they are providing a kind of fig leaf for people who would celebrate this terror. If you just say I'm an anti-Zionist Jew, but then you full-throatedly com- uh, condemn Hamas with no ifs, ands, or buts, like Judith Butler in the London Review of Books, where which is evidence of her evolution in many ways, because she was the person who said that Hamas and Hezbollah were part of a progressive coalition, which is nonsense, in 2006. Um, if you, if, if you, if you, you know, conduct, if, if you have demonstrations that you help organize with groups that are openly celebrating this massacre, well, then you are celebrating a horrific atrocity against Jews and hiding behind this idea that we just don't like Israel or what do you expect with, you know, people, you know, I mean, who are, you know, caught in an open air prison or something like that. You are deliberately um, kind of you're, you're deliberately camouflaging. You're confusing what Hamas is and what they are trying to do. This is in their charter. Okay, let's get to, let's get to that. Let's get to Hamas and and resistance. Sure. Um, and let's just let's just set aside for the moment. Although we can get back to it if you want. People who celebrate the massacre of Jews, who celebrated what happened a couple of weeks ago. Let's set aside uh, the entrenched anti-Semitism across much of the Arab world, uh, and let's set aside the deluded um, purple head. Uh, wannabe social justice warriors parading around in the streets in the West who don't understand uh, the history of the region. And let's let's just look at the, what I think is probably the strongest case of your opponents, which would be what I think is the centre of gravity of public opinion in Australia and probably the UK and Europe. I'm not sure about America, which says Hamas is terrible. They didn't come from nowhere they weren't conjured out of the ether without any historical context of what had happened to the people who were so frustrated that they turned to them 
as a saviour, much to their detriment. Likud, the Israeli right, the settler movement, has done nothing for about a quarter of a century on peace. Not since the 1990s has there been any opportunity for Palestinians to have a future. In many ways, Netanyahu has explicitly emboldened Hamas because he doesn't want to have a partner for peace in the Palestinian Authority. It suits him to have Gazans rotting in this quote-unquote open-air prison. I mean, whether you call it that or not, whether that's inflammatory, it's one of the shittiest places to live in the world, and that blame can be shared by Hamas and also Israeli intransigence on doing anything about resolving what to do with this couple of million people who are sitting there. So is it Jew hate and Jew slaughter? Yes. Is there also a historical context in which it's taking place as an act of resistance against an unsustainable status quo? Also, yes. And do we not want Israel to, excuse me, to do what we know, what we knew that it would do three seconds after the slaughter, which is end up killing lots more Palestinians who don't like Hamas, didn't have anything to do with Hamas. Maybe they kind of like Hamas now, but then what other option do they have? Uh, But they weren't born wanting to slaughter Jews. They were made. Okay, well, I mean, that's a lot to unpack. Um, (laughs) So the first thing I would say is that um, I, I don't agree with the with your statement that nothing was done for 25 years because uh, in 2005, Ariel Sharon uh, dismantled and removed the IDF and a few settlements basically uh, from Gaza, making it uh, free of any Jews and also some settlements in the West Bank unilaterally in a deal with the George W. Bush administration there were efforts under Ehud Olmert, his successor, to reach a kind of, uh, you know, revive the Oslo peace process. It didn't go very well or didn't go very far. Um, so that's the first point I would make, which is that, yeah, I would agree that um, the Netanyahu government has not made a peace process a priority, but I think you have to credit Netanyahu. And here's where I think there's been a lot of... Um, guess you could say convenient uh, sort of argument from people who make this point about bolstering Hamas or something like that. I mean, the actions that when you talk about in the abstract, it sounds sinister. But what 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 we're talking about in reality is that Netanyahu ended up issuing more work permits for people from Gaza. Netanyahu ended up um, in some ways loosening some of the restrictions uh, or border controls on Gaza. Um, so, you know, in that respect, he was, he was going not as far probably as some of these critics would like, but certainly in the direction that they would like in trying to loosen the, um, border controls that Israel places on Gaza. Now, second of all, uh, I would say that the massacre of October 7th is all the evidence one would need for why there must be some border control of Gaza, full stop, because this is what the people who rule Gaza have been planning. I um, don't think that Hamas speaks for all Palestinians or all people in Gaza. Uh, They won a single election in 2006, and they have not stood for elections since. 
and there have been sporadic demonstrations at great personal risk to the Palestinians who have protested. I'm not saying that those protesters spoke for the majority of Palestinians in the Gaza either. I think we have to accept that we just don't know the answer to that because they have not been asked. Palestinians have not been asked for their opinion on what they think of Hamas's misrule. Hamas has used its uh, power to, uh, you know, they they take money from uh, the international development aid. Um, they seize resources. They keep their populations. Um, they have some they have some role in the kind of misery and poverty of Palestinians in two respects. One is is that they um, they are autocrats, uh, little autocrats for the strip. So they they rule through corruption. And the second is that they have created the security problems that affect Gazans with these skirmishes that we have seen up to this point with Gaza. So they they have started all of these sort of little mini wars, and then they've just started a big one. Um, And so in that respect, um, I just think that trying to put this about Netanyahu's, you know, government or, you know, Palestinians are hopeless and they turn to violence or something like that. Well, that doesn't really follow. There's been a a single political party in charge of this strip of land that has decided to basically prepare for war in every possible way and make war in every possible way, whether that is through their education program where they are, you know, have, you know, they tell kindergartners to revere the shaheeds or the martyrs, you know, of, of you know these former suicide bombers, or whether it's the actual um, stockpiling of rockets and missiles and other fairly advanced, like you know, military weaponry that they used uh, in this massacre. So, in that respect, you you know, if you want to try to have a complex analysis, sure. There is more that the Israeli governments could have done to negotiate maybe with the, um, you know, Abbas leadership. Uh, We can get to that or and or um, taking a harder line on some of the settlement activities, although that is often exaggerated. There there are there is an IDF presence in part in the West Bank in order to tamp down uh, some of the vigilante activity from the settlers, although it's not perfect. But um I think we have to yeah, the, take a step the, back the, and like sort of plainly understand what this political party, political terrorist group Hamas is all about, what their goals are, how they seek to achieve them, and how, you know, you can't you can't be in a position where you're making war all the time, and then your position is well, oh my God, Israel can't can't respond because it's the more powerful party. It's a, it's like I don't get it. I mean, there are a couple of things about that. The, you know, one strikes me that the claim that what happened on October 7th proves why you needed to have a blockade on Gaza in the first place is... It's not a blockade, level. by the way, because blockade implies that there's nothing that comes in or out, and that's not true. Well, I mean, if if a country imposed on Australia or America the kinds of restrictions on goods coming in and out that Israel imposes on Gaza, we'd call it a blockade. I don't know if we would. Um, it's. I mean, I'm just saying a blockade. I mean, massive restrictions on on all kinds of medicines. Massive restrictions on. Uh, you know, th- it goes. International humanitarian groups have demonstrated that it goes well beyond what you could use to launch a, a uh, an invasion. Okay, but nonetheless, for some reason, it seems that Hamas had fairly advanced 
weaponry, not to mention paragliders and all kinds of other things. So, yeah, I mean, well, I didn't say it was a blockade that's working very, <laughs> very well. I'm just saying, I, when I say that it, it, it sort of is, it demonstrates the need for border control. I think it's obvious. I mean, there's a reason no, why you that. can't have people coming in and out of Gaza without getting, you know, having having an, an IDF officer check their papers and, you know, find out who they are and so forth. It's because... Yeah, but it's not just that. I mean, it's that shipping into Gaza is curtailed and intercepted by Israel to make sure that, you know, only a certain amount of very specific types of things are coming in and out. Everything, everything that goes in and out of that enclave is controlled by Israel, except for what is not legal, is what, what is brought in illegally. Well, right. yeah, I mean, I mean, that's, they, but they've still managed to, you know, develop a rocket arsenal that is capable of hitting Tel Aviv even beyond. So that, I'm just saying. It's, what does that have to do with whether there's, you know. Well, that's why, that's why there are, that's why you, well, that's why you check every shipment that comes into Gaza. That's why, because you, you, the group that's in control of Gaza uses as much of its, uses its resources to, again, build a war machine to commit atrocities like it just did. I mean, it part it uh, on one level I understand that, and on another level, it sounds a bit like the the old joke that the beatings will stop when morale improves. And you well, know, uh, but, expecting... but 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 wait a second. When was there a period when Hamas was not trying to make war with Israel since it took well, over in two thousand seven? I, I, I think it's a bit cheeky to keep focusing on Hamas because the mo- the generous interpretation of the center of gravity of Australian heartland opinion or opinion around other Western liberal democracies, is not that Hamas are great. It's that Hamas is a perverted uh, eruption that comes out of underlying conditions that Israel is complicit in creating. Well, I would agree with that if there was any evidence that we had other than the 2006 election, which Hamas won, barely won uh, a majority of the legislature. But we have no way of knowing. They don't, they're not a legitimate democratic government in that respect. I don't think that Hamas's no. behavior is in the interest of Palestinians. And I've been to Gaza. The last time I was there, I should say, is 10 years ago. But I've been to Gaza. And when I've talked to people privately and not to be quoted, what they will say is that they understand perfectly well that Hamas's behavior is one of the main reasons for all of these restrictions on their daily life. I'm not denying that it's not it's 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 uh it's not there's not a hardship although sometimes i do think some of these groups exaggerate it as i we were saying earlier netanyahu has loosened some of those restrictions of which he will i think pay the fatal political price but the key point here is that i don't you know hamas planned this two years ago they came up with three different explanations they are the actors in this respect so i i i really push back on this idea that the desperation of living in Gaza led Hamas to do something that it had been pledging to do ever since it was founded in 1987, which is to kill lots of Jews. Mm. I mean, if the claim is that there would there are other is the claim that there are other ways that Gazans should have tried to aspire towards self actualization and freer freer richer lives for themselves, because if there are. The Palestinians on the West Bank also haven't made any headway, and they haven't elected a death cult to run them, and they're not doing things like October 7th, and they still don't have the ability to move freely around without being 
harassed without fear of new settlements being built on their land with any aspiration for having a state someday and not living under the conditions that they do. Well, I mean, in that so to answer your question, I think it's 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 too simplistic to say there's more that the Gazans could do to oust Hamas or something like that. Some Israelis had said that. I think there were things that Israel could have done. I think there's things that um the United States could have done. I think that there should have been a priority and I'm not trying to be immodest here, but I have written many columns uh in the last 16 years saying that there should be more elections in Gaza and there should be a plan to get rid of Hamas from ruling it. But I'm just you can't you you're going to have this restrict these restrictive conditions on Gaza so long as Hamas is in control. The argument that nothing else has seemed to work for us, I think, is a little bit disingenuous. Yes, the Fatah spent force that is in control of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank is not they're not they're not as fanatic as as Hamas. um, And they they have not done this horrendous atrocity of October 7th. But they still have a program in the Palestinian Authority to have, you know, stipends for the families of what they call martyrs and people who have committed terrific atrocities. If you look at the rhetoric of Mahmoud Abbas, it's disgusting in recent years. Um, and so on the idea that, you know, one corrupt kind of spent force uh, in the West Bank, um, you know, they haven't gotten anywhere either. I, I think it, it, that, that that, yeah, they haven't gotten there because they're corrupt and that they 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 still have you know these stipends as i said for the families of suicide bombers and their so-called their their shahids and there i think it goes back to something that is very very difficult for westerners to really understand but with maybe the exception of a few years in the 1990s under arafat and we now know that arafat um probably didn't mean it when he you know uh was you know negotiating peace as at least most of the uh, histories of the final Camp David negotiations in 2000 and tell us um, that, you know, part of Palestinian political liberation, like how they understand it, has been that their method is going to be if you create enough of atrocities against Jewish people that they will find it intolerable to live there and they will leave. That was the, 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 that was the um, kind of animating idea behind the Arab revolt of the 1930s. It's what led them to the Munich, you know, the, the, the thinking behind, you know, the massacre at the Munich Olympics and on and on it goes. I mean, if you look at what the second intifada as opposed to the first intifada, the second, the uprising that comes after the Oslo process in 2000, um, it's absolutely like vicious. And there are, there, there, we, I, I have to go back as I wrote about it at the time, but there are, there's, you know, we, there are documentations uh, documentation from Arafat that part of the strategy was that we're going to make life intolerable in Israel. And if you remember in that period, there were, you know, pizza parlors and hotels that were blown up by um, Palestinians, yet usually very young, who were probably brainwashed to give their lives to kill more Jews. Now, that to me uh, is a kind of pathology. Um I don't mean to say that it applies to all Palestinians. There are plenty of Palestinians who have disagreed with it, including at one point even Abu Mazen. That's not the point. The point is is that it's, it is something that has been a, a kind of animating idea 
in the notion of like how Palestinians will achieve their statehood. It goes back to uh, Franz Fanon, who I talk about in my latest podcast, um, this idea that decolonization and, you know, the emancipation of one's colonial mind comes, you know, through violence against their oppressors. And, you know, there are a million reasons why it doesn't work for Jews in Israel, because there is no mother country there. But let's leave that aside. So, again, I don't I don't buy this argument that like the Palestinians have tried all of this nonviolent means to do stuff. And you know what? It, it just, you know, now they have to turn to massacres. That's 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 uh, I think it's also in some ways the soft bigotry of low expectations for Palestinians. Hmm. Let's go through that that history, like because a lot of people will have a vague sort of uh, sure. idea. And like <laughs> I heard someone say of Mahmoud Abbas that he only seems to do three things. He sleeps, he smokes and he says something stupid. Uh, but we've gotten to that point uh, after many decades. And I think I think there's a latent assumption from people who don't know the details of the history to think, well, what do you expect when you when you grind people into the ground for decades? You know, when 70 years ago you drive them off their land, you come in as a colonial power, and I'm speaking as the uh, as the the voice of a person who I disagree with here. I'm not, this is not Josh speaking. You come in as a colonial power, you parachute in. Uh, in the long history of uh, of colonialism and imperialism, you push people off their land and then you give them no viable way to achieve uh, a state. And certainly since the 1990s, uh, you continue to build settlements on their land, that criticism I do, I do agree with, and then you turn around and go, oh my goodness, these people are dysfunctional. They just say silly things and they're full of hate and they launch attacks at us. Yeah, well, what exactly else did you expect to come of this? How did you expect this flourishing democracy to emerge in the embers and the banter stands that you have raised and that you insist on, uh, and that even when you withdraw from, you impose blockades on. N- now, the the question, the parallel history that you're kind of hinting at, which is a pa- which is an alternative history in which Palestinian leaders had the foresight to take a Gandhi approach or a Mandela approach, uh, is an interesting alternative history to explore what would have happened if instead of blowing up bus bus fulls of israeli citizens palestinian leadership had 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 pursued a an aggressive peaceful resistance was that ever on the cards let's go so let's go back to before 67 i mean you can go back to 48 if you want and just give people a, pl- a potted history of how of where we are well, I mean, I think it's worthwhile to start in 1948, but we should say even before that, that there's always been a Jewish connection to the land of Israel, and Jews have always lived in Israel. So that's the first point that we should always s- sort of start with. Um, the, there, you know, I guess, I, I'm not, an, I'm not, I, I don't want to get this wrong, but I'd say since the 1920s, there have been um, violence between the Zionist, um, you know, kind of people who have come to Israel, you know, pursuing a Jewish state and various kinds of Palestinians. And the wars have been vicious. They were very vicious before 1948. 1948 was a war between a people that had just survived the Holocaust and the entire Arab world. All the Arab armies uh, participated. The Jewish forces won. Um, And if you remember, there was an offer at the time from the UN to share the land and the Palestinians rejected it. Then uh, and again, we're going very quickly. 1967 is the Six-Day War. That, again, is most of the Arab states attacking Israel 
Israel Israel uh, wins that war, although we should say that Israel technically is the first to strike, but all of these forces were sort of arrayed on their border and there were uh, threats to cut off Israel from the Suez Canal. And then 1973 is another version of that war. Um, and then the, the Palestinians then kind of pursue in the 1970s um, a, a strategy of terrorism. Um, and just to clarify, an important wrinkle on 67 is that that's when Israel comes into possession. Yeah, of course. Of Palestine, basically. Like, you know, there was this whole area that was part of Jordan. Uh, and then the Gaza Strip, which was part of Egypt. And, and the Sinai. And, and Syria. Go yeah, and Sinai as well. Yeah, that's right. And so all of a sudden, Israel finds itself uh, through what was initially a defensive war sitting on top of all this land. And there's an amazing documentary film with uh, a, a, a succession of Israeli military leaders of, from that era who are all saying, like, we all thought this was temporary. I mean, we thought we'd have, we'd have a negotiation, we'd figure out how to give the land back, and then there'd be peace. So they can't believe that a half a century later, Israel is still sitting on on, on this land, but uh, so well, some of that tough. land, I think that Israel shouldn't give back, like the Golan Heights and East Jerusalem. But that's a separate question. Yeah. Um, and then you know the Palestinians then kind of engage in uh, the the terrorism of that era, um, and the you know the Israeli uh, have did a does you know invades Lebanon in I think eighty one. Um, and there, that's a very bloody war. Um, lots of innocents are killed, but in, it is a response to the fact that there, the, that that Palestinian terror groups are committing atrocities, you know, and cross border raids and things like that. Eventually, the uh, and does Hezbollah exist at that point? Hezbollah is formed in the, in the 1980s uh, with help from yeah, the Iranians. So the, yes, during that war, so it's about at this time that the Palestinians and the Iranians and Hezbollah are beginning to create a coordinated. Well, front. I mean, it, it's 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 probably much more coordinated uh, after uh, 2003 when the U.S. invades Iraq, or at least it begins in that decade, the last decade, and then much more in this decade and the 2010s. We're in the 2020s now. Um, eventually, the the leadership of the PLO is uh, kind of uprooted from Lebanon, and they are briefly in Tunis. Then the Berlin Wall comes down. I, again, potted history. This is super fast. Um, the Berlin Wall comes down. Soviet Union collapses. There's something called the Madrid Peace Conference where Arafat is, uh, I don't know, you could say elected. I don't know if he was elected. He was, he was chosen by various Palestinian leaders in the West Bank to represent the Palestinian negotiations. It's the first time the Israelis sat down and negotiated with them. Then there's 1993 under Bill Clinton, where you start what's known as the Oslo peace process. That's where you get the famous handshake with uh, Rabin and Arafat at the White House lawn. Um, and, you know, that peters out, but there was a last-ditch effort in 2000, um, and well, just clarify why it petered out. A, a right-wing Israeli assassinated the prime minister. Well, I would, I would know. There was still a lot of negotiation after that. Yeah, um, I mean, there was that was had... not. I think the reason. I think the reason was because in the Camp David II, as it's known, um, then prime this minister is after Rabin's after Rabin's assassination. This is in two thousand. The very end of yes, the end of yeah, the Clinton. Is that the PM? Well, the, no. Iraq is the PM in this in these negotiations, yeah. and this is uh, the end of Clinton's presidency. And um, 
you know, Ehud Barak um, offers Arafat probably the best offer, you know, that could have been conceivable from Israel, including joint sovereignty of Jerusalem. And Arafat cannot accept it and doesn't come up with a kind of counteroffer. Now, there is a dissenting view on this from Robert Malley, who was a mid-level staffer and is in the news again in Washington because uh, his security clearance was recently suspended, um, that says, you know, that, that, that sort of blames Israel and the United States more. But this is what Bill Clinton, Dennis Ross, and all of uh, the, you know, most of the people who were there when their memoirs after this, these negotiations were basically like, Arafat did not have a counterproposal and just said no. And then we get what's known as the Second Intifada. The Second Intifada then, um, you know, obviously prompts a military response from Israel. Eventually, they deal with this problem of suicide bombers for a number of reasons. We don't have to get into it. And uh, for people who don't have a living memory of the Intifada, what is the... Uh, so, so I'm just going to slow down here because the 90s is critical, I think, to... If we're going to apportion blame anywhere, then it is crucial that people understand that in the 1990s, there was an offer there was an offer for something like 97% of Palestinian land, yes. no more settlements, an actual country, sharing the holy capital of East Jerusalem. Uh, you know, All that there wasn't that the Palestinians really care about was a right to for all Palestinians to return to the original lands of Israel, as I understand it. Yeah, and it's, that, that's and, a fantasy kind of anyway. Yeah, and obviously that's not going to happen. I mean, no other... No other country in the world that has a tension between people who were here previously and uh, and a new and new arrivals, whether that's First Nations Australians or Native Americans or whatever. No one would accept that they get to come and take my house or live on you know yeah. the house that I that I that I bought. That would never be on the cards. Yeah. And so the Palestinians walk away from that offer. And in Cl- in Clinton's biography, he says that Arafat said to him that he that Clinton is a great man and Clinton said no I'm a failure and you made me one. Yeah, that's that's all true. But I mean even if you don't want to take Clinton's word for it, there's lots of other people who attest to basically that Arafat said no and didn't have a counteroffer. So they so he goes away and launches an intifada which, which by the way there's evidence that he was planning at you know at the end of the summer of 2000 when there were still these Camp David 2 talks. So um there's a second intifada. Um, what does that mean? Intifada just means uprising, but the uprising is there's two intifadas. There's one in '88, where there 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 is there are terrorist components of it, but it's largely nonviolent, and you see a generation of kind of Palestinian local leaders, and it, it I think it was much more uh, defensible in some ways. But the second intifada is. I mean, we see the uh, formation, by the way, of uh, something that sounds very Islamist called the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade. But that was that was the, the, the PLO doing that kind of riding on the wave of, of this uh, more current ideology of political Islam, as opposed to the PLO's founding ideology, which was like uh, the socialist nationalism of Nasser or Aflac or others. So. Well, is this uprising, the second intifada, is it coordinated and de- decreed from above, or is it an organic thing that comes from the grassroots? Well, there's a lot of evidence from uh, what's the, the Arafat compound that was seized by Israel. They got a lot of documents, and yes, there's a lot of evidence that it was coordinated from above. I actually did an interview in the middle of the second intifada um, with Amin al-Hindi, who was the uh, kind of Fatah apparat in charge of uh, intelligence for the Gaza Strip, and he he acknowledged that there were there were 
there was coordination and he said this is like a war and you know that kind of thing so the reason why that is such a uh, an important point to make about the second intifada that it was indeed coordinated was because the very institutions that were brought in with Israel during the peace process to maintain security then basically not only didn't stop the bad guys but participated in this um so this then led to this idea of um basically kind of a, a consolidation for Israel where in 2005 Ariel Sharon after bringing quiet in putting down this second intifada withdraws from Gaza it it it, it did it, it was very very uh traumatic for Israel. It tore the country apart in a lot of ways, but they did it. Um, and, you know, it, and then then there were elections that were pushed by the Bush administration and Hamas wins the legislature elections. And the Fatah party, the PLO, will not seat their representatives where they would have a majority. So this creates a standoff. And then in 2007, this, so the elections in 2006 and 2007, Hamas has had enough. They feel that they're, you know, that that the that the uh, the PA, the Palestinian Authority, is not is welching on, you know, their guarantees of abiding by an election, and so they then kick out the remnants of the security forces for the Palestinian Authority in Gaza and take over. Um, and Hamas has been in control of Gaza ever since, and that has led to a situation where. Every few years, there have been these rocket wars, uh, and each, you know, and over time, Hamas gets better and better at these rockets. And then finally, and again, I'm skipping over a lot, but finally we see the October 7 massacre, which is representing a kind of new and grotesque strategy uh, for Hamas. So that's that's the, the potted history. Mm. Thanks for that. The... So it was. What were the off ramps? Let's be as generous as possible to Israel's critics, because I think there's just a vague cloud of suspicion, especially about the past twenty years. I mean, you keep saying that Israel withdrew from Gaza, and it did, uh, but critics would say that it withdrew and then imposed a, an untenable blockade. And then you can say, well, of course they had to blockade it because it was. It wasn't a blockade when they withdrew. Okay. There was a blockade after Hamas took power. That's a very important... I mean, again, that's the reason there is a blockade. Do you understand why now Israel might have a problem with things going in and out of Gaza after October 7th, as if you needed more information? Not you, I'm saying, Josh, but I'm saying to the... Yeah, 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 no, I get it. Um, Okay, Uh, so what were the off-ramps? Well, I mean, this is going to sound maybe counterintuitive, but Israel declined uh, to go after the Hamas military headquarters and I think it's 2011 but I'd have to remember what it, it was one of the wars where because they were under one of the largest hospitals and if they were to go after the Hamas military headquarters and decapitate this you know regime in Gaza they would there would be you know a PR nightmare not to mention lots of innocent people and kill you know destroying a hospital so um I would say that one off-ramp was the failure of the IDF to understand that um, you needed to, you need, you couldn't have any kind of, you know, real security if Hamas was in charge of Gaza. They believed they could manage the conflict. That for the most part, 
you know, Hamas decided to fire lots of rockets. They had Iron Dome and they could protect the country. Um, and, you know, Hamas would, you know, kind of stew in Gaza. And meanwhile, you know, it was very cruel in some ways uh, to the Palestinian people that they had to live under these, um, you know, fanatic autocrats who, you know, torture political dissidents, you know, torture gays and lesbians. And uh, we all know the list of horrors, but we should remember them in the context of what the Hamas does to their own population. Um, so that's one off ramp. Another off ramp might have been, although I don't know that it was necessarily ready, but I mean, I think that, you know, there there could have been more creative efforts to try to bolster um I'm going to forget his name, but there was one guy who was brought in to basically try to fight the corruption of the Palestinian Authority. He was an American Palestinian. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not remembering his name right now, but, you know, this was on the West Bank. This was on the West Bank. And um, he was somebody who did have a serious idea of trying to end corruption. And eventually uh, the U.S. just sort of, you know, let him dangle in the wind, so to speak. And Kerry uh, decided to pursue negotiations between Israel and Abu Mazen uh, and, you know, just sort of stopped trying to create other power centers or to have government reform uh, for the Palestinian Authority. So that was another area where maybe there could have been more attention paid to the quality of governance as opposed to just finding you know, dealing with the same old uh, corrupt people who spoke for the Palestinians who were not willing to deliver peace. Um, you know, I don't know uh, whether, I mean, I think the Israelis could have done a better job of maybe leaving out the, you know, trying to, um, well, I, you know, it depends on what you mean by settlements. I, I, I don't think it's realistic to ask um, Israel to, prepare to, you know, divide the city of Jerusalem or redivide it. But I do think that there 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 could have been um more consistency, and you saw this under Ulmert, of going after um some of the uh sort of illegal settlements that were not approved and more importantly, some of this this generation of, you know, youth gangs that were, you know, Jewish that harassed the Palestinian population, though we should not you know, it's a two-way street. There's a lot of, you know, there, there are Palestinians who do the same kind of thing. And, but, you know, those, those kinds of Jews, these kinds of fanatics, people like Baruch Goldstein, who was responsible in 1994 for a horrific massacre in a mosque, you know, he, he was killed in that attack. But, you know, groups like that should be um, dealt with swiftly by the IDF. And there have been times when they've been dealt with not as swiftly, although, that, again, I think is exaggerated by some of the critics of Israel because, you know, there, there, there are arrests of, of uh, you know, Judeo-fascists on the West Bank. Um, so it's not... It, but I, I don't think that's... I mean, the, so there's, the, there's that whole thing of, uh, you know, individual lone wolf people who are perpetrating violence. And I think most reasonable people could agree that those people should be, uh, you know, should be punished. Yeah. But then there's this, I think the sense that I get from people who are just world weary of Israeli intransigence, as they see it, is that uh, after the failure of the peace process in the 1990s and the withdrawal from Gaza, uh, perhaps because of big demographic changes in Israel, where some of the 
more hippy-dippy, kibbutzim-style, secular Jews who were dominant in the country in the past have been replaced by Orthodox uh, Jews uh, from Eastern Europe and Russia who are much more committed to a very robust vision of Zionism. You've got this electorate that is now electing and re-electing governments that you know, forget what, forget about Netanyahu. He looks like a left-wing peacenik in comparison to some of the right-wing parties that he's in coalition with, who really do. And I've interviewed some of these guys. They basically do think that Israel should be, you know, a single Jewish state all throughout the entire region. And they have been aggressive about allowing and authorizing these little settlements on land that everybody in the world knows would have to end up being Palestine. So you put yourself in the Palestinians' shoes and you go, okay, well, this is the only space in the world that we're going to ever get a state, even forget about right of return or anything. And they're constructing towns, fortified towns on that land. For us to move around, we have to face constant road checks and, you know, the nightmare of being ensnared in Kafkaesque bureaucracy and 22-year-olds with machine guns in Israeli uh, military outfits policing how much flour you're bringing to your neighboring town to give to your mother-in-law because there happens to be a settlement now that's constructed between your two towns. Uh, Like, what is the the off-ramp at strikes me would have been stop building those fucking towns in a place that everybody knows would have to be Palestine that is Palestine and provide some indication that the Palestinians who are not trying to execute uh, and slaughter Jews have a path towards a state and that what has been happening on that front in the past 15 years well, again, I, I'm not really that persuaded by that because there are things that the Palestinians could do, such as, again, ending this, like, pay-for-slay stuff. And, um, you know, I mean... I, You're dealing with the population. I mean, the population would boot them out. Like, with every passing year of misery, the population is likely to become more radicalized. And we see that in Israel as well, with every passing year of frustration. Well, I mean, let's talk about Ben Gavir and, and Smotrich, because I agree with you that these are Judeo-fascist. I criticized um, Netanyahu for kind of making a cynical alliance, uh, which really began in, like, 2018, um, with these parties, and I think that they have no place in a kind of respectable Israeli politics. But um, on the other hand, I, you know, that they, they they are able to be part of a ruling coalition because most of the country has given up on a fantasy that the Palestinians, uh, if you if you just you know offer them the right incentives, will you know live in peace with Israel. So I mean the. You have to understand how, I mean, there's a reason why the Labor Party is now an afterthought in Israel when that was, you know, it came from the original coalition of Ben-Gurion and, 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 and had a political monopoly until 1978 in the election of Menachem Begin. And that is that the Labor Party promised a kind of approach of land for peace, which when it was tried by a Likud prime minister, Ariel Sharon, ended up being land for rocket wars. And so there, there is a sense here where I think Israelis feel that, you know, they they they're not going to go back to 
um, what they see as the kind of illusion that, um, you know, negotiations will somehow end the conflict because it seems that um, when they have given up land, and they also, by the way, got out of southern Lebanon in 2000, um, that it only just adds to their security nightmare. So every time that Israel has, you know, sort of conceded territory, um, it's been met with, you know, more war. So again, you have to ask yourself the question, has the Palestinians really made that strategic choice that we all thought they made in the 1990s, that they are willing to accept less than their historical demands for, um, a, a, you know, a Jew-free Palestine, the entire territory, um, you know, is that something that represents, you know, where Palestinian leadership is at this point? My view is that the answer is in governance reform and finding better and better leaders and figuring out how to incentivize how do you get those there without a partner in Israel. Like, uh, if I, think Israel... Could, I think the Israelis, I think the Israelis, if there was a, a every time you've seen a former foe, um, take risks for peace, whether it's Anwar Sadat or the recent Abraham Accords, the Israelis have been eager to make peace. It's, it's you know, if you had a palace... I mean, isn't it incumbent on... Isn't it the job of the people who hold all the cards to be more aggressive about trying to find a solution? Well, than the how, people who I don't know that I would say that Israel, uh, Israel... Israel doesn't hold the cards. If it did, it would... I mean, I as I said, I would have been in favor of Israel using one of these wars to just get kick Hamas out of Gaza, that would have been obviously a good thing in retrospect. But um, they've they've always, I mean, especially Netanyahu has always, you know, sort of loaded the idea of another reoccupation of that strip and then all of the problems that come along with it. So... Right, but the options are not either reoccupation or unilateral withdrawal and then the tight control over the area. I mean, what Palestinians want is... An agreement, an agreement where they have independence and they can run their own. Do they want? If, if that's all they wanted, then like they could have had that in 1995. They could have had it in 2000. They could have maybe even had it in 2010 during the Omer negotiations. Why? I mean, I, are you sure about that? I'm not so sure about that. Well, I mean, I'm sort of channeling. Like I heard an old Israeli general saying, "It's not us against them. It's some of us and some of them against some of them and some of us." So there is there is some cohort of people in in the Palestinian territories, one would assume, who would be okay with a state, uh, maybe even an unarmed state, that does not occupy the entirety. Well, I okay if that if that's true, and I hope it is, then the, then it is in Israel's interest, it's in America's interest, it's in the Arab region's interest, it's in the world's interest, and it's in the interest of Palestinians to find those people and cultivate them as peace partners because clearly the leadership right now of the Palestinians is not interested in that. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, okay. again, uh, you know, the beatings will stop when morale improves. But that's it's not, like... I don't think that's really the case because you cannot expect a, 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 a state to, um, I mean, who are the, who is the negotiating partner? Are they supposed to, to try to, you know, say, well, let's try another approach with Hamas and, and, and talk about, you know, what a, great future will be when we all live side by side. We know that that's not going to work with them. We no, know that's I'm not really... I must copy at the table. I must copy at the okay, table. Okay, fine. Well, I mean... But, I mean, Abu Mazen, what, what we... First of all, I don't even know that Abu Mazen has any legitimacy. He also has not stood for an election since 2006. Second of all, um, I 
don't know that um i mean based on his recent you know comments in the last five or six years that he wants that this is something that he necessarily wants I mean, whatever. Who knows what he wants? But he is, you know, sensitive to the Arab street, as we call it. And he, obviously, if he was too conciliatory, uh, then uh, the his people would uh, would boot him out. Um, so there's there is there is that. I mean, in the same way, I totally understand your your frustration about like who is the partner for peace here and who exactly are you supposed to be negotiating with. And at the same time. While there is this alternative history that I can imagine in which Palestinians, instead of responding with bouts of terrorism, had uh, responded with a strategy of peaceful non-resistance, I can also imagine a parallel history in which since, say, 2005, Israel was ruled by, you know, imagine that Rabin had been in power instead of Netanyahu. Are we confident that he couldn't have found some in maybe but you know i mean it's an interesting question but i'm just saying you have you have to understand that when when arafat launches the second intifada it's it's devastating to the peace camp in israel and then after a likud prime minister goes against his own party and his own base and withdraws from gaza and five settlements in the west bank never forget that um and um, you know, you know, almost tears the country apart. Uh, that is met in less in like less than a year and a half by rockets. I mean, I'm just telling you that like this is the political reality in Israel. Israel's a democracy, so it's it's hard for me to imagine how um, you can have a leader that would not you know take a different line after the experience of the 1990s and the 2000s. Mm. Let's talk about the future, Eli. The, okay. There are now two things that Israel needs to do. Uh, one is to make sure that October 7th can never happen again. And the other is, in a longer term sense, to turn down the heat on the conditions that you're talking about, right? I mean, if the problem is that we're we're skeptical about how much willingness there is amongst Palestinians to tolerate merely a state and how much of a desire among Pal- among Palestinians on the street there is to actually wipe Jews off the face of the earth or at least out of the region, then you've got to find a way to turn the dial towards, yes, we'll cop a state versus, no, we want to execute Jews. Like, can you do both those things at the same time? Because it strikes me that to really protect yourself against Hamas, you have to do some devastating shit in Gaza, which then inflames the opinion, which prevents the long-term settlement. I mean, at this point, I think Israel has to focus on ridding Gaza at the very least of Hamas. I would imagine that, I mean, I have no inside information, but I would imagine that, that you know, Hamas's leaders that live in luxury outside of Gaza and Doha and Istanbul and Ankara uh, should prob- are, could very well be targets. Um, I think we have to look very seriously at the prospect that the Iranians are um, more involved. It's it's unclear at this point. The U.S. government says they don't have direct evidence. There are other people in Congress who say they do. There have been some journal some reports that have suggested the Iranians certainly had a role. And if you look at the comments from Ayatollah Khamenei, the supreme leader of that country. Uh, and the history of Iran's support for these proxies, then, of course, you know, the Iranians 
have some culpability. So I think we're already looking at a kind of regional war, and a regional war started by um, what the Iranians will refer to themselves as the axis of resistance. I would prefer to call them the axis of dirtbags, but, you know, the listeners can be the judge of that. Um, so, you know, in in that respect, I think that those are the kind of immediate questions that take priority into, you know, uh, that take priority over, you know, what will public opinion be in Gaza and the West Bank after this war or something like that. Sadly, I believe the Palestinians are caught up as pawns in this regional conflict that is, you know, really being fueled by Iran. And so, um, you know, I would love it for there to be, you know, an opening for, you know, some Palestinian leaders to sort of say we are no longer going to be, you know, the, uh, the, the, the pawns of, of, of Tehran. They have nothing to do with us. Um, but I'm not holding my breath uh, precisely because I think there's going to be a, a bit of brutality that the IDF is going to unleash in Gaza. It's always a kind of human tragedy. There are going to be innocents who are going to be killed. And I don't think that anyone should celebrate any of that. Certainly not me. But the priority, if you want to make sure that you prevent October 7th from ever happening again, is that you just have to just destroy Hamas. You have to, you know, you have to you have to destroy them. You know, some people would say, well, Hamas is a brand. It's an idea. Okay, but there are also leaders of Hamas, and they're also, you know, they have resources, and you have that's what you have to focus on. And now is not the time for abstractions because they're a very real threat. It is interesting to ask the question of what happens to the next. I mean, you know, so you kill all of Hamas. Do you think of Hamas as a discrete thing, or do you think of Hamas and Hezbollah and Al Qaeda and the Taliban and ISIS as different forms of Islamist fascism? that will find a way to infect people's minds and provide a convenient model a blame you know it makes you blameless it makes it makes other people the americans the jews the colonizers the bad guys it makes you feel righteous it gives you a simple worldview it, it offers you paradise after death like it's it's a cute model it's nice it's a fundamentalism and you know is what do you do about that well i'm I think that you there's two different things going on. As we talked about a little bit earlier, there is a very deep-rooted sense in kind of Palestinian uh, political expression that its strategy should be atrocities against Jews in Israel and forcing them to eventually leave so that you know, Palestinians can take over. Um, and that, as I said, has been a strategy since before even there was a state of Israel. And then it's it's kind of been taken over, at least parts of it have been taken over by this uh, imperialist, um, revanchist version of political Islam, which wants to conquer, you know, to recreate the caliphate. So, yes, there is a connection between Hamas, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the Muslim Brotherhood, it, it was originally kind of formed as a out of the branch of the Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood. And all of this kind of goes back to a lot of very bad ideas about, um, you know, imposing Islamic law and again, recreating the caliphate. Um, but, you know, we, we've dealt with this. I mean, I don't, you know, you, you don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. ISIS looked really tough in 2015. And by 2020, they... They're, you know, they 
they, there was no ISIS caliphate and they became less of a threat. Al-Qaeda looked very imposing in 2001. And now, you know, nobody really cares what they do. And they're sort of, you know, like, live, I don't know, they're like living in like, you know, the, uh, you know, in, in squalor and rural Afghanistan or wherever the hell they are. And there, yes, there are other regional affiliates of Al-Qaeda, but it's not the, the it, it's not the force that it once was. So I think we've seen that, you know, uh, the ideology is poison and um, it does offer something to a certain kind of, you know, I guess like a certain kind of Muslim, a certain kind of person. But um, it's possible to sort of, you know, there's nothing inevitable about, you know, them and there are their strategies for destroying their leadership, just as, you know, there was a time when Abu Nidal was a was a major figure. And, you know, eventually, you know, through uh Counterterrorism and things the Israeli and probably the CIA did. Abu Nidal became a spent force, and you know he, his his lieutenants turned on him, and he was living in exile in Iraq. So I just mention all of this because um, I I don't think it's an, an excuse for not necessarily doing anything. As for the appeal of political Islam, um, you know when you control all of the education in a little statelet like Hamas has done now since 2007, it's very easy that you will raise gener- a generation of people who, um, you know, go along with this nonsense. Um, mm-hmm. So part of it, part of the way that you deal with this ideological problem is to deal with the, you know, physical presence of these organizations and make sure that they're, they, they don't have, they don't control territory and they don't, have the ability to, um, you know, poison more minds. And then I just want to say one other thing. The history of particularly Islamist groups does not show that they get their recruits for their most, you know, kind of their, their, their next generation of leaders and most fervent operatives from, you know, the most dispossessed. They usually come from, you know, educated middle-class families. Just look at the Bin Ladens, look at Ayman al-Sawahri. He was a medical student at the University of Cairo, um, you see all kinds of examples of a lot of people who have embraced revolutionary violence, you know, whether in the Islamist version of it or, you know, earlier versions of kind of, you know, inspired by uh, Lenin and Marx, uh, like, you know, Carlos the Jackal. Um, these were people that came from fairly comfortable, you know, bourgeois families. So, um, I, so in that respect, I would just say that there's a, that we should be careful about how we think about, um, you know, what to do. But there's an immediate problem right now, and that immediate problem is Hamas. And, you know, I think it's fair to and say then, that Israel had had the wrong strategy, thinking that they could manage the conflict with them. And now I think they understand that they, they can't live in a world with Hamas. And then in the longer term... Uh... Like, how optimistic or pessimistic are you? What becomes of Jews in that part of the world? I can't imagine, you know, Australia is 122 years old. It's pretty recent uh, that the country formed into an actual nation. In 122 years, it, it doesn't strike me as likely that the status quo continues to persist, where Israel is able to continue merely using the tools of security to protect itself. So do you end up, like, is there a nightmare scenario in which, uh, you know, Arab countries or Iran 
uh, take advantage of this? Is there a better scenario in which there's a two-state solution? Is there an alternative scenario in which there's some kind of one-state solution? What do you think ends up happening in 100 years? Oh, well, um, you know, I mean, I think that you, you have to deal with the Iran problem. And I think the ideal solution there is to support the millions of Iranians who despise their regime. And I think that then things begin opening up a bit. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, if you think about it, um, you know, is Israel has managed to almost come very close to, um, a peace with Saudi Arabia, which nobody would have thought was even remotely possible even a few years ago. So I think that there's a lot of options out there. I don't want to predict what will happen in a hundred years. I certainly hope that Israel still exists. And, um, but I think in the, in the near term, a part of the answer to that problem is you have to prevent this uh, fanatic regime in Tehran from getting uh, a nuclear weapon. Eli, thanks for your expertise. Uh, hang in there. You too. It's Thank you for time. having me. No, but it's, it's great to talk to you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.